today on Doomed! After a week that will go down, I think, in the history books as the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows. Really, that is what the week we, we just left behind. Sean McAway joins the show, co-founder of Data for Progress, and obviously, uh, honestly, I should say, in my opinion, the guy who started the Abolish ICE movement, even though uh, the New York Times thinks differently, and we'll be talking about that on the show, uh, and we'll also be talking about Supreme, the Supreme Court and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's big win in New York 14. Uh, all that and more coming up on the show. But first, I have to welcome our guest, Sean McAway. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. I am now pulling us up on the feed so everyone can see us. The little doomed graphic is off. And there we are. Hello, everybody. Hey. So, Sean, thank you for joining me today. There was um, a lot going on, and I know you were... Uh, you were moving around the country uh, yes. the past few days. So, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate you uh, making the time for us on Doomed. And um, so let's, let's talk about this week, shall we? This week, huh? I'm happy, too. Yeah, this week, right? I mean, what are we going to do about this week? I, <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, I, I truly feel like if there was a, you know, a way to just describe um, how, I guess, I, I don't know, I'm not bipolar, but I guess if I was to guess how bipolar people felt, if they were, you know, not taking their medication, maybe this is how they would feel. This week would be the perfect uh, analogy. I think this is the, the week that is sort of like socialism or barbarism. Like, it is more clear than ever that those are the two routes and the only two routes that we have. Right, right. And uh, people, what are you going to choose? Socialism or barbarism? I gotta say, barbarism sounds a lot cooler for some reason. <laughs> it does sound like just like I'm in with that one. But I think I think Alexandria is making socialism cool as fuck. Like, oh no, I think no, no, so, socialism is so cool now. I'm literally just talking about the word. Like, <laughs> like if you were to say, like, you know, if we were in some sort of movie and someone was like, that gang over there, they're they're the socialists, and that gang over there are the barbarians you would want to be part of the gang called let's the barbarians start a consulting firm. like let's you know what we need some like socialist consultants out there let's let's start making some money on the side right right With some branding consultancy for socialism you know i i gotta say uh after uh some of the events this you know what i gotta say ever since fucking 2016 let me tell you people like you and me should be running the political <laughs> consulting firms i agree and we should be telling democrats how to win and how to beat trump and i that's all there is to it that's not even a joke at this point i mean i mean honestly a couple more aocs and i genuinely believe they will start asking us i i am not mm, i am serious as a heart attack mm, i don't know i don't know man i don't know uh, let me. T uh, people uh, who listen to the show know that I've been doing work with uh, Cynthia Nixon's campaign, mm, and yeah. and um, so I got to tell you that doing that stuff, I can tell you that's not going to be the case, <laughs> 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 because the man, the Andrew Cuomo people are, you know, really uh, this, 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 this. We could we'll talk about this later because we'll, yeah. we'll make time for it because I really want to get to this week and the big things that happened this week, and we should. 
first, you know what? Let's let's end on a happy note. So let's talk about the fucking worst possible thing, <laughs> and that's it is, and that's Justice Kennedy retiring from the Supreme Court. I mean, yeah. this fucking guy. I'm I'm cursing up a storm. We always curse on this show, but I don't think yeah. I've ever dropped so many f bombs just like in this. I, I, what is this like the? It's like the the, the game today <laughs> between Denmark and Croatia where they scored. They each scored a goal within the first four minutes. Yeah. Uh, that's gonna be. We're gonna have a all time f bomb drop on this show in the <laughs> smallest amount of time because this guy, Justice Kennedy, he without a doubt, you know, people have to understand like he. You know, when, when he chooses to retire now, what he's basically saying is, I want Donald Trump to be the guy who replaces, who picks my replacement. I mean, that's, that's what he's saying. It's not just like, I'm retiring. Like, I, I've done my duty. I'm old. I'm whatever. No, he's p- pretty much saying, I want to retire now before anything happens. And, and Donald Trump, a guy like Donald Trump at the very least, can't pick my replacement. It's really reminiscent of Sandra Day O'Connor, where everyone was sort of like, no, Sandra Day O'Connor represents this sort of like older style of conservatism. And at the end of the day, she let Bush pick her appointment. And then even worse, she had the temerity to just like the entire rest of her life just be like whining about the fact that the Supreme Court in the country moving further right. And I am almost 100 percent certain that within a year, Anthony Kennedy will be giving speeches about how awful Donald Trump is. Every pundit will be like, boy, oh boy. And at the end of the day, all of these, all these conservatives, all these Republicans from Jeff Flake to Anthony Kennedy love Donald Trump. They love his agenda and they're going to support it. At the end. And like, it's just jarring to me how long it's going to take the media to get that they'd like him and that they want his policies to exist. Oh, without yeah, you know, they're not going to ever get it because if anything shows that I don't get it, you know, they're still asking out there like the the most stupidest of questions in terms of like, hmm, Donald Trump said something hypocritical about that immigration bill. First, he said he urges the Republicans in the House to pass it, and then two days later, he said I never urged them to pass it. Right. Will that have any reverberations to Donald Trump's president? No. And why are you asking? No one cares about this stuff anymore. You can be a hypocrite all you want yeah. now. It doesn't matter. You, I mean, not even just now. You were able to be a hypocrite. For a long time. I mean, yeah, I still do the screenshot thing when I see something hypocritical coming from right-wingers just because it's funny. I know no one cares. I like to laugh at it. Other people like to laugh at it. When I do that, I'm under no sort of uh, belief that this is going to mean something or someone's going to feel shy or stupid or or the Republican I'm screenshotting is going to say to themselves, oopsie, what did I do? No, I just think personally – these fucking guys like that's what i'm saying when i'm screenshotting that shit (laughs) i've I've already seen uh someone say that jeff flake was gonna hold up the supreme court appointee which i mean in what fucking world and i've also seen um susan collins and it's just like every time they like hold up these people as sort of moderates and there's no question in my mind that there is jeff flake will extract zero concessions from mcconnell he'll probably do a tweet like I've just been assured by McConnell that my vote for ex right wing justice will assure that DACA gets brought to the floor and he'll get steamrolled again. Uh, they're utterly useless. And to be entirely honest, it, I don't even know if every Democrat will vote against Trump's uh, next Supreme Court nominee. Right. Right. I mean, you you have. Um What's her face from Montana? What's her name? I'm having a mental block right now. Trump called her out. Oh, you're thinking Heidi, Heidi Heitkamp from Dakota? Oh, yeah, that's what I mean. Sorry. My bad. Yeah. 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 Heidi Heitkamp 
uh, she uh, voted for Gorsuch. And you think that would, yep. you know, not, no, you, we don't think this, but her, right. her people, her centrist uh, blue dogs and, and all those different various uh, center-right uh, groups, they, uh, they think, oh, that'll maybe get us some leeway with the, the Trump guys and the MAGA people. Uh, Trump straight up said that uh, on Twitter the other day how uh, you can't count on people like her to uh, support whoever uh, he picks. Uh, are, are you kidding me? Like, why do these people continue to try to, to, try to reach out? It doesn't matter. Either, listen, if, if Heidi Heitkamp wins, it's going to be, be because more Democrats in, in North Dakota come out to vote for her. If she loses, it's going to be because more Republicans come out. No one is, there is no group of people who is like, oh, she won them over. That's not, that's not right. going to happen. That's not going to happen. Yeah, and uh, I actually just wrote a piece on The Nation on – we actually my, – my think tank sort of studies the way that candidates message around the Supreme Court. And what we actually found was that Democrats tend to message around the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court has positive decisions for the Democratic Party, even though most Supreme Court decisions fuck over the party. So there was a lot of messaging around Obergefell, but there was very little messaging around issues like epic systems. And what that means is that the average Democratic voter is really uh, misunderstanding the ideology of the court. And what really needs to happen if we're going to have any progress on this is we need a small D Democratic movement, a grassroots movement that actually puts pressure on the court and fundamentally understands it as a political institution. We have to stop pretending that this is law. It's not law. This is politics day one to day two to day three, and the decisions are decided fundamentally by the political realities at play. Right, right. And you know what, you actually... I'm saying back to courts. That's what oh, I'm saying. <laughs> I, well, yeah, absolutely, and I want to get to that. And, and, and I actually wanted to bring up a piece you wrote for The Nation where Democrats must stop pretending... The title is literally yeah. of the piece. Yeah. Democrats mm-hmm. must stop pretending the Supreme Court is apolitical. And... Uh, you just brought up that we have to pack the courts. So for people who don't uh, quite know what that is, uh, can you explain that to them? Sure. So there's actually no constitutional requirement of how many justices sit on the court. And throughout the court's history, it's actually varied. Um, There have been times when there was not nine justices on the court, um, and not just because of deaths. Um, And the most sort of significant example of this was um, during the FDR era, there was what was called the Lochner era. And what essentially was happening at the time was that a a conservative majority on the court invented new constitutional doctrines that they used to strike down things um, like minimum wages, uh, like bans on child labor, um, workplace safety standards. And FDR essentially said, look, I am the democratically elected leader. Um, I am going to add uh, more justices to the Supreme Court. He had some you know, made up reason for why this was valuable, but everyone sort of knew it was because he wanted the New Deal to happen. And that actually political pressure um, was so intense that it actually broke the court. Um, and essentially, uh, there were some timely deaths. Um, and then um, some some more moderate justice eventually just switched over and said, all right, like, we're gonna, we see, you know, the writing on the wall. The other example of uh, sort of democratic movements, small democratic movements, uh, basically overriding the court's will is is a bit less progressive. And that is massive resistance to Brown v. Board of Education. Um, I think that people have a sort of storybook telling of Brown v. Board of Education in which the court, you know, says 
segregation is bad and schools desegregate. The actual story is uh, far different. Uh, Brown v. Board of Education desegregated basically zero schools. And the reason was was because Southern political leaders essentially said, I don't give a shit what the court says. Um, in order to create the 9-0 majority that was needed, um, that was felt to be needed to sort of say we have a 9-0 majority, uh, the words with all deliberate speed were added into a second desegregation decision. And that was interpreted by the lower courts to mean never. And so we have two examples in history, one progressive and one regressive, of the ways that essentially politics um, with with a very aggressive organizing and mobilization has overridden the will of the court. And to be entirely honest, I think that there is going to be a need for a similar situation. We're reaching a point where a majority of the Supreme Court justices were appointed by presidents who did not win the popular vote. We have sort of in the circuit and district courts, um, Trump appointees that are only there because Republicans uh, ignored the blue slip tradition um, and Obama and Patrick Leahy respected the blue slip tradition. And as long as we have this sort of situation in which the courts are far to the right of the rest of the nation, we're really starting to question how closely we actually are a democracy. Right, right. Uh, quick question, Sean. Were you able to hear me when I asked you that about your article and everything? Because people on the stream are yeah. telling me that it cut out. All right, cool. So it should be fixed okay, now. I, I heard the. I heard. Yeah, it, the, you mentioned the article that I, I wrote for the Nation. All right, cool. So it should all be good. I don't know what these guys are talking about, but I fixed whatever issue <laughs> they. Whatever there was something. I think I fixed it now. Everyone on the stream should hear me. Uh, all right, so. So that, you know, that to me, so what are the odds, you think, <laughs> and I'm asking this quite rhetorically, of the uh, Democratic Party uh, uh, packing the courts? They're, they're, they're incredibly low. Um, <laughs> from my perspective, the main movement that the, port, the court packing is, is to understand um, Roberts and Alito and Gorsuch <laughs> fundamentally as political actors acting within the political system. Um, and as long as the Democratic Party and the Democratic base treat the court as a sort of apolitical actor that can't be moved, um, they're going to lose. But once they begin understanding Roberts is fundamentally a political actor who cares a lot about the legitimacy of his institution, um, we can have power. And we really have to create movements um, just the way the, the, the pro-life folks have done that understand the court as a, a key political actor on issues that we care about and mobilize around those issues. And what I actually argue in the piece and what I think people are, are, are starting to, to see more and more is that that means we have to talk about economics. Right. Um, we have for too long treated the court as fundamentally uh, an institution that rules on things like abortion and things that like gay marriage. And those are two very important things. But the court also has an incredible amount of power to destroy the lives of working people day in and day out and enable economic concentration. Sean, and Sean, I to Sean them, why, yeah. why, why, are you <laughs> why are you focusing on uh, white working class Trump voters when you say that? Why you the, funny <laughs> thing is, is that the funny thing is, is that Maisie Hirono is one of the people who's made this argument most powerfully. Um, and after Epic Systems, after um, Janice, the, the reality is, is that the court is destroying the lives of working people. And I ask Democratic strategists this all the time. I say, what is the one thing that you remember about Gorsuch? What is the thing that sticks to you in, his, in the hearing? And everyone says the frozen trucker, right? Gorsuch voted to fuck over a working person who was frozen in the truck. And I'm like, 
Exactly. So why don't you talk about that when Trump's judges come up? Like, why aren't you talking about health care? Why aren't you talking about the minimum wage? Why aren't you talking about sexual harassment at the at, in the workplace? Why aren't you talking about the way that every day when people go to work, the Supreme Court is making their lives more miserable? Um, and no one really has a good answer for this. Um, and I think that more and more, though, we are seeing the need for this. I mean, particularly because unions are furious about Janice. And the Democratic Party should be terrified by Janice because if you gut unions fully, the impacts on the ability of the Democratic Party to win elections in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, which they need for an electoral college victory, uh, decreases dramatically. You have any examples of any elections where we could have, you know, won, <laughs> won those two states and we would have, you know, things would have been better? It's, it's worth noting that two of those states went right to work right before the 2016 election. I, and I, I think right. that there is a very strong chance that that is what, what changes the outcome. So, you know what? Let's get a little more into Janice then because that is, yeah. that is what kicked off this uh, week from hell that had little uh, moments of really highs that were great and wonderful that we'll get to at the end, like I said. Yeah. But, you know, Janice was the thing where, you know, come in, we woke up on Monday morning, off to work, and uh, check your uh, Twitter feed or your RSS feeds or whatever you crazy people listening to this stream and podcast uh, use to, <laughs> to keep up with the news. And uh, the Janice decision came in, and boy, did it suck. Yeah, Janice is probably the most significant um, <laughs> decision the Supreme Court has made since Shelby, um, because what it does really definitively is changes the playing field that politics occurs on. Um, much like Shelby sort of opened up a wave of voter suppression, Janice is voter suppression part two. It's voter suppression in the form of making it harder for unions to engage with working class folks who, who are going to vote. And that includes a lot of working class, uh, particularly people of color in states like Michigan. So in, in, in most states, um, there are collective bargaining agreements um, that public sector unions have in which um, all members of a unionized shop, uh, such as teachers or, or, or something like that, are required to pay agents, agency fees. Um, and that's because the union represents their interests, whether or not they join the union, because the union collectively bargains. Um, and what the Supreme Court did was claims that this is compelled speech. Uh, it claims that this is forcing people to uh, pay for a union that they may or may not support. And we know that's bullshit. Because um, as a, a young scholar named Alexander Hertel Fernandez noted, in Citizens United, the court decided that corporations were allowed to compel speech from workers. And in many cases, we now see corporations threatening workers uh, with the potential firing if they do not show up for rallies for Republican politicians. Um, we know in many cases, workers have their bonuses and promotions tied by doing internal work that is fundamentally directed at the political system. So Anthony Kennedy has basically decided corporations are allowed to compel speech, but unions cannot take a fair share of fee for the representation that they provide to workers. So what this means is there are going to be a lot of people who decide, I'm going to take the extra money on the assumption that the union is still going to bargain for me, because right. they will, um, and I'm not going to pay for that representation. And that is going to drain unions for money. We actually know because um, many states have actually passed similar laws to this, and the effects are immediate and they're very powerful. 
Um, we've we've actually had studies uh, by by Hertel Fernandez and others showing that these sorts of laws decrease uh, the amount of money that unions have pretty dramatically, and they actually end up decreasing turnout among working class folks uh, because those folks are no longer being mobilized, they're no longer be- being engaged because unions simply do not have the money to keep in touch with those workers. Hmm. You know, it's <laughs> in in a way I sort of feel like you know. Um, the Supreme Court isn't uh, this apolitical. Uh, <laughs> I'm sort of, I'm sort of, sort of starting to hit me. You know, starting to hit me. The the Democrat, it's, it's, the Democrat in me always overwhelmed me on this. My my feelings <laughs> in the Supreme Court. <laughs> and, and the thing that's really key about this decision, though, is that the the um. The Supreme Court decisions before this that allowed agency fees, um, the Supreme Court president was called a boon. It was decided in 1978. It had never been questioned by any court until you had a 5-4 Republican majority in the court. And that's really telling. What it tells you is we do not live in a country of laws. We live in a country uh, fundamentally of politics. And I think that people didn't catch this enough with things like the Affordable Care Act. When John Roberts struck down the Medicaid expansion, he was fundamentally doing a political act. And we need to really understand it that way. And we need the media to stop pretending that the court is is not institution. We need the Democratic Party to stop doing it. And I think people people worry that this is sort of demagoguery, but it's it's really not because the, the alternative is that we have a world in which democratically elected leaders who, who hold the will of the people can't enact the agenda that they've been elected to enact because of a court that is inventing new doctrines out of thin air. And we know it's a new doctrine right. because for 40 years, the doctrine had been something entirely different. And the fact that Alito and the court are willing to sort of step out on this limb and step outside of these doctrines is clear. But the, other, the more important thing is we know also that um, unions have been working through cases, test cases, to basically see if there's any way to use this decision in their favor um, by mm-hmm. using the idea that compelled speech by, say, a corporation is bad. And I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident that these cases are not going to work. And But every time one of these cases falls through, we will have more evidence, right, that the Supreme Court – treats corporate speech different from labor speech and is fundamentally putting their fingers on the scale. That's really interesting, actually, how they're, you know, what what's an example of how they would use one of those in their favor? Uh, there, like- yeah, you should check it out. There's a there's a great piece by uh, Rachel Cohen uh, in The Intercept on this. Um, I mean, you could you could see a lot of examples where, where workers are, are compelled to do speech um, in, that's that's fundamentally political in nature uh, on behalf of their employers. And so unions are going to start challenging that. And we will see if the Supreme Court decides that that speech is also compelled. Um, the, the key distinction here that the court is trying to make is public sector versus private sector. So we can we could easily imagine examples um, in which, say, a public sector employee is being forced by a conservative school board to uh, teach maybe uh, the history of slavery in a, in a weird way. And we will see, does the Supreme Court consider that to be compelled speech? And if they don't, we sort of know where, where, their, uh, where their interests lie. <laughs> hmm. I wonder where it does lie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So I'm what, saying I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of success with these cases. Right. So so the answer really is, you know, for, for you know, Janice is a great example of yeah. the, the of of why we need to pack the courts. I mean, <laughs> it, it's yeah. no, go ahead. The, the pack the courts sounds radical. But what it really is, is it's saying is like the democratically elected politicians should have some ability to influence a court that has shown itself to be a fundamentally political institution. That's all it says. So who do you think uh, Trump's going to uh, nominate to replace uh, Kennedy? Um, so I haven't been looking at this closely, but I know that there is a he is going to he has said he's going to pull off of the same slate of justices that he had proposed um, and took Gorsuch off of. Um, so was folks it like Brett Kavanaugh? Was it was it was it Mike Pence who tweeted out something like, uh, I want to thank Justice Kennedy for all his his service all, <laughs> and, uh, 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 throughout the years and how they're going to replace him with someone like Scalia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, which is a great so, way to say yeah. thank you to someone. I really respect you. <laughs> I'm gonna pick someone who is more like your former dead, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, co- uh, you know, who's on the Supreme Court with you. Not someone like you, though. We're not gonna go with someone like you. Which you know, Kennedy sucks. Kennedy was a, a, a center right justice, but at the same time, for a number of cases, he was a deciding <laughs> the deciding vote. For a number of very important cases, uh, yeah. He, so he, he was the deciding vote. Stands yeah. out, yeah, yeah. A uh, Burgerfell stands out, which was the the gay the gay rights case. Um, probably the most important recent case was actually Fair Housing Act stuff. <laughs> um, he's been he's been he's been good on some cases regarding affirmative action in fair housing and racial discrimination. Um, he's been the sort of swing vote on abortion, which does not in any way mean that abortion rights have not been. Um, very much dismantled under his tenure, but there was some, and he actually has many um, uh, decisions that were incredibly offensive. Um, he he believes, for example, that women often regret um, abortions, and there's there's really no evidence that that's true. Um, so he had an incredibly paternalistic view on abortion, uh, but he was never willing to go as far as the far right. And what, 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 what's concerning is that the Federalist Society, which is a right-wing organization that basically organizes and invests heavily on ensuring that the courts are right-wing, has a very close connection to Donald Trump. Donald Trump sees basically that the way that he maintains um, the Republican base is by allowing the Federalist Society to determine his judicial picks. And I think it would be it would be very surprising if a Flake or a Collins was able to override uh, the Republican caucus on a, getting a federal society pick. And, and that means that you're going to get a more down the line conservative who really does not think that Roe v. Wade is law, um, does not think that Casey um, is law, which is the, the sort of case that comes after Roe versus Wade on abortion rights. I don't think that um, any affirmative action of any sort will be able to stand stand up. And I think that there's actually a decent chance of backsliding on gay rights as well. So, uh, you know, like I said, what a what a downer. I mean... <laughs> yeah, so it's, I'm t- I'm t- it's very bad. I'm taking this stuff in. the courts are weak. Right. And th- I think it's very important to remember that the courts are weak. Um, and if you have an overwhelming congressional majority in a presidential, uh, and you, you win the presidency... You're going to have to take action to use the democratic process to rein in, um, rein in the courts. 
You know, one of the things that, you know, throughout the, the Trump administration, I, I've always said to people to give them sort of an optimistic view to feel good that, you know, is that most of the things that the Trump administration has done is, is reversible. I mean, yeah, right. yeah, there are people who are hurting and there, there are people who, but again, nothing different than uh, the Bush administration. People mm-hmm. died and got hurt then and we were able to reverse things then. Uh, people died and got hurt during the Obama administration. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we, I, I wish we can say that something better happened after that and we progressed on, but right. we sort of regressed after that. Uh, but, you know, but, you know, I think actually talking with you, even though it all sucks and it's all terrible, um, and from what I've been reading from other people, is that, you know, even though we obviously won't be able to reverse who Trump picks, there, right. there are things we can do to make those people, those, those, those Supreme Court justices, matter less. And maybe if we get some sort of Democratic Party with some, uh, some, uh, some, some, I don't know, testicular fortitude to steal a, <laughs> to steal a, to steal a quote from Mick Foley. Uh, <laughs> I say, uh, I say, we have to get rid of the norm cucks. And that, I think that actually like leans towards like a sort of important divide within the Democratic Party that is beyond the sort of like economic policy divide. And it's like, who is committed to the idea that the norms of the Senate matter? And I actually, I have a lot of love for Patrick Leahy and a lot of issues, but at the end of the day, he did believe that the blue slip tradition, um, which is this like really weird tradition that has no basis in any sort of law, but it was basically that if a home state senator who presided over a a circuit court didn't want a a judge to be um, up for a vote, they could nix that vote. And Leahy, during his time as the chair of the Judiciary Committee, uh, allowed Republicans to stonewall a bunch of Obama appointees. And I, I would say on one hand, he was entirely wrong to do that. On the other hand, I think that there was a lot of opportunities for folks who were on the sort of broad progressive umbrella to challenge Leahy to, on that, and very little actions was taken. Despite the fact that Patrick Leahy was allowing Republicans to hold up women judges, uh, judges of color, gay judges, we should have been energized and mobilized around that, and I think that that was a failing. But yeah, fundamentally, the Democratic Party has allowed the Republicans I, we, we used to play Monopoly, and we had this thing where, like, if you broke, if you were the first person to break an, a rule or a norm or, like, break the trust of another person, <laughs> you got, like, a little advantage, right? Right. And if you kept doing it and no one else stopped you, you would keep gaining these small advantages that would get you better off at the Monopoly game. And that's really what's happening with the Democratic and Republican Party, where, like, Democrats always let Republicans break the norms first. And that means that, like, each time the Republicans do it, they gain this tiny advantage but each sliver of advantage sort of builds up to the point where you have won how many presidential elections uh with a popular vote one in the last uh eight and you're appointing uh six of the nine judges that, uh, judges that sit on the court right you know you just made me think this is not nothing to do with the courts but but speaking of like the norms and how you know yeah. the, 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 the whole civility argument and everything which is bullshit and ridiculous you know Someone, you know, Maxine Waters was never really someone who I really thought anything. I mean, she was a Democrat, and if I was in her district, I'd vote for her because she's a Democrat yeah. and better than a Republican. But, you know, her politics wasn't anything that really, you know, she was seemed to me to be just your, your ordinary, everyday Democrat. Um, yeah. And, you know, when she sort of uh, got went viral with Trump with what she was saying, I was always sort of like, yeah, I get it. She's cool. But, I mean, she focuses way too much on Russia, and she's focus just on that and she's not really 
But then the other day, she comes out and says, <laughs> yeah. you know, she's receiving death threats because she basically said that the Trump administration, people who work for the Trump administration shouldn't, you know, shouldn't expect to go out and eat and be comfortable. People will, <laughs> yeah. will, will ridicule them. People will, will make them very uncomfortable when they're out in public. And even the Democrats, Schumer, who sucks. And- Schumer was... Schumer is so bad. It's like hard. It's hard to like fathom how bad he is. Um, something I've yes. something I've started to like. Something I started to like to do is that I tell people that in 2016, I voted third party, and then I tell them that it was my first time ever voting third party, and then I tell them that it was actually just for the uh, the the Green Party who uh, candidate who was running against Schumer, and I voted <laughs> and I voted for Hillary actually in the uh, the actual general election for the presidency because I did. I voted for Hillary. Yeah. But but Schumer literally is the first time I ever voted. Like other than obviously in New York, I could vote under the Working Families Party, mm-hmm. and it yeah. still counts for the Democrat or whatever. But someone who was actually just running under third party in 2016, I couldn't fi- I couldn't not vote for Hillary. I, I felt like even in New York it was safe, but I just felt like you know mm-hmm. I had to do it. But I still wanted to say fuck you to the Democratic Party, <laughs> so I voted for the random Green Party candidate who had some weird, crazy nickname, actually, who was like – it was like first name, dragonfly, last name. And I was like, what am I doing? But I was like, I got to do it because screw Schumer. <laughs> but like back to my point yeah. about Maxine Waters. She's out there today after receiving death threats for saying these things. Yeah. And, and I think it was yesterday, I think. Excuse me. And she says – if you're gonna shoot, you better shoot straight. I'm like, what? <laughs> this is yeah, this is this is fantastic. This is what we should I, be doing. I do the one thing I do love. I mean, like Maxie Waters and Barbara Lee are just like fucking amazing California reps. And you know, Lee took that amazing vote of the AUMF that God still to this day, uh, it just like gives a skip of my step when I think about it. Like the amount of courage she had with that. But Waters was great on apartheid too, um, and she like really fucked up with like Reagan and stuff. Like she fucked with Reagan, and and yeah, like it's so good to hear Democrats talking about that because like honestly, like fuck Republicans and like yeah, like make their lives miserable. They want to live in in our cities, like I, the Cato Institute. I, we're like so off track, but like the Cato Institute has that thing where they like say how free your state is by how much cousin fucking is allowed, and I'm like. If you guys think that like cousin fucking states are the great states, then go live there. But you don't. You live in our cities, <laughs> and we're gonna roast you if you try to like hurt undocumented people and then come and eat in a Mexican restaurant. Like you, you, you're asking for it. Now, do you think some people feel like that? You know, there's no way this many Trump administration officials on a regular uh, work week. Uh, eat at so many Mexican restaurants. So do you think? Do you think that this was something that was like they knew they were gonna get a reaction? Or what? What, what do you? What, what's your? Because see, I I don't know. I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist usually. And <laughs> and but but something is we may, maybe the first time you know with uh, what's her face from the DHS maybe she oh Nielsen yeah uh, Kajirsten Kajirsten Nielsen yeah I think I think she probably did it legitimately. And then it had the 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 uh, the, the the DC uh, DSA chapter mm-hmm. did what they did to her, and then maybe like the other people were like, Haha, "We should fuck with them and do it too." Like I don't think though that like it was something that was planned from the beginning. I, I think it's I think it's genuinely a good tactic to roast them, and like I honestly think part of it is just because like it shows you how. Um, oh, no, I'm talking so about I'm talking about is. I'm talking about like Stephen Miller and all these other people. Ran oh, yeah. from the Trump administration, randomly going to a Mexican restaurant that same week. 
Like, yeah. they all had a hinkering for tacos all of a sudden. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. I, 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 like, I just, I think, like, the idea that, like, sort of they are somehow winning when they get shouted out of restaurants is probably not correct. Um, among other things, like, it shows how... I, I, the media has been so bad on this, man. Like, Manuel Duran has been detained by ICE for three months now, and no one's written a fucking op-ed, a single op-ed. You can go to, like, look this up. Like, the New York Times hasn't written a single op-ed about this guy being detained by ICE. But they'll write 17 pieces about yelling Nielsen out of a restaurant and, you know, yelling Sarah Han- uh, Sanders out of a restaurant. And it's just, like, honestly, the only thing that gives me hope is, like, young journalists who I see covering this stuff. Like, they're much smarter about this. They understand the stakes. They've actually lived through um, – they know people who are being affected by these administrations. And, like, man, like, the, the mainstream has been so bad on this stuff. Speaking of the New York Times – and yeah. uh, the civility argument, uh, discussion, whatever you want to call it. I think it's a, a good time to bring up the fact that you, Sean, uh, you are, I, I think, I, uh, apparently the New York Times thinks differently. <laughs> they do. Are, are the guy who, who started the Abolish Ice movement. Um, whether you're the first person to say Abolish Ice, who knows, but you're certainly the first person who decided to take that rallying cry, that, that call to action, and turn it into a movement. And New York Times wrote a piece about Abolish ICE. And I'm scanning through it, and I'm like, and then they, they say, they give someone else credit for, for it, fine. Perhaps they, like I said, found someone who was the first to say it or whatever. But they didn't mention you at all. How do you not mention Sean McAway in an article about Abolish ICE? I mean... I mean, I guess it's the same way you completely ignore uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, before yeah. she wins her damn race. But let's I mean, let's stick with Abolish yeah. Ice at first. I, I feel like I'm happy to say, like, yeah, it's, it's, like, annoying, like, they didn't cite me. But, like, what's weirder is, like, they cited the PCCC. I have no problems with the PCCC, but the PCCC has not been active on this issue. Uh, the progressive uh, – it's, like, something about the progressive campaigns. Like – United We Dream action has been aggressive on this issue. Make the Road action has been aggressive on this issue. Why not talk to an immigrants' rights group who supports abolishing ICE? And also, when when we talk about the candidates, AOC was not quoted in that piece. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez brought the idea of abolish ICE to so many voters so powerfully. Like, I, I talk to candidates a lot about sort of the issues that they want to run on and include on their website – AOC didn't just have a part of her website that talked about abolish ICE. She brought it up in debates with Crowley. She brought it up in her social ads. She roasted right. him on it. Right. And like that, she she won that election partially because of abolish ICE. Why are you not getting quotes from her in that piece? It, it was it was such a bad piece on a movement because it didn't really engage with the sort of centrality of the movement, which was a reckoning within the Democratic Party in the complicity the Democratic Party has in white supremacist immigration policies. And that's exactly fair to say. You know, um, you know, uh, Crowley represents a district that is 50% immigrant, that is 70% people of color. He voted for ICE. He calls it a fascist agency, and he won't call for abolishing it. That is and what I, think, I found to be yeah. so funny. Like, how do you say, like, yeah. like, how do you say, how do you, how do you even, like, how does that happen in your head? Like, how do you go... Yeah, that organ that 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 group is a fascist group. Should we do yeah. away? Should we do away with it? Eh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, 
So you're basically saying we should keep the fascist group. I mean, what do you? What is going through your head? What is your logic behind that? And he's not the only person to say it either. There's been numerous. Uh, uh, Cuomo, I think Andrew Cuomo didn't go as far as calling yeah. it a fascist group, but he said they've clearly overstepped what they're supposed to do, or something like that. And then he was asked, and he said, "I wouldn't go that far." So you're saying let's keep them for let's keep the group who is overstepping and doing the bad things. Let's keep them. I mean, what is it's the- actually. It's actually a great summary of what the Democratic Party seems to want, which is well-regulated fascism, right? Like this has been the argument throughout all of Trump's tenure, which was that we, we, we sort of call out what he's doing very explicitly and we say what he's doing, but we don't escalate the tactics we use to respond to him to meet that threat. And it's just been deeply frustrating. And I think that like, that was what made Ocasio-Cortez's campaign so powerful, was that she was willing to escalate the tactics to meet the threat that was posed very directly her, to her community by ICE. Um, right. And we're seeing more and more people start to hop on the abolish ICE train to the point where, like, I'm not even worried about will candidates support this. I'm worried about being co-opted at this point, right. which is obviously a great thing to be worried about. Um and, and, but it's is so important, and I'm like happy to talk to you about about co-option. And I, like, let me hear where where you're at, where you're at with that. Yeah, let's let's talk let's talk about that because you know, a lot. I, I don't think anyone's even got into that point really to even bring that up. So I think this is a great talk to have actually, because uh, because people are still trying to just grapple with abolish ice as even like a thing. Like they're not even they're not even at the point I think where they're th- thinking like, all right, once we get this to be you know something that's not. Uh, 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 Democrats don't think it's career-ending to even even put forward. W- what what goes from there? So what what is your what, what do you think of that? What would happen if something if this got co-opted? What where where do you lie, where do you lie on that in terms of like where this could go? Oh, Sean, did you you froze on me, buddy? Uh oh, let's uh, call you back. Let's see what's. Uh, one second, everybody. There we go. You all right there? Oh, we dropped. There we go. All good? All right. Yeah. All right. to go. Cool. So, so, no, it's all good. People, you know, you're, 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 you're out and about doing things. <laughs> so what, what, um, what would, what, what are you, what are your worries about, about, um, a possibility of them co-opting the uh, Democrats, uh, central Democrats, uh, co-opting abolish ICE. Yeah, so it's worth sort of briefly discussing where abolish ICE comes out of, which is the sort of anti-deportation movement. Um, since ICE was created, it's been a contested agency, right? Um, Ten Democrats in the Senate, um, and actually close to a majority of House members uh, voted against establishing ICE. So it's never been. Like, which again, like, makes it like sort of wild that it's now considered radical to say abolish ICE when it wasn't at the time considered very radical to vote against the establishment ones. But um, as soon as you have ICE, you have these anti-deportation movements arising. It's worth remembering that Obama was called the deporter in chief by actually immigrant activists. Right. And so I think that if you have a abolish ICE legislation that doesn't fundamentally end mass deportation and end deportation you have like sort of lost the thread 
which is it's not about the name. It's about the fact that ICE is doing ethnic cleansing through deportation. So so what would you know, I, I, one of the things that bothers me the most, actually, because I want to I want to make sure we, we have enough time to keep yeah. to talk about everything else I want to talk about. One of the things that bothers me the most is people here abolish ICE and Republicans mainly go, uh, oh, you want open borders, uh, sex trafficking, right. uh, uh, child slavery, oh! Uh, what do you, Sean McAway, person who has founded the Abolish Ice Movement, say to that? Because I, I, I have a feeling, I have a, a, a way to, uh, you know, but, but I want to hear what your, your, your uh, I guess, uh, rebuttal to that is. Sure. Um, so interior enforcement, which is what ICE does, actually doesn't affect immigration flows. There's a lot of evidence on this. What affects immigration flows is um, war and violence um, in the origin country, um, you know, climate change, uh, sort of economic factors, policy factors. All of those affect sort of how many people are coming across the border. At the end of the day, though, how many people are being deported has no effect on that because no one who's leaving their country is in like a flotilla knows like, oh, ICE is cracking down more aggressively. I guess we'll go some like somewhere else. Like right. that doesn't happen. Right. And I think, you know, abolish ICE gives us such a powerful way to talk about the way that U.S. policy from the period war to um, capitalist uh, demands for cheap, exploitable labor have created the situation we have now, which is we brought a bunch of people in this country we made it so that they could never get a passive citizenship because we wanted them to be outside of labor law or capital wanted them to be outside of labor law so that they were easy to exploit. And now they face the threat of deportation. And we've actually seen instances where employers, when an undocumented person is filed for an unemployment claim or a workplace discrimination claim or a claim for compensation for an injury, They've said they've called up ICE and said, deport this person so we don't have to pay this claim. And I think that's a great example of how the sort of like capitalist sort of plutocratic structure is relying on white supremacy to achieve its ultimate aim. Right. Right. Um, so let's, you know, um, hmm, trying to see how much time we have here. Uh, all right. Let's talk about, uh, you know, like you said, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was the first uh, really, uh, uh, at least on, on, on that level, uh, can- yeah. candidate to back abolish ICE, not even just like made it her rallying cry as well. And yeah. uh, I still can't believe the New York Times didn't mention you or, or even talk to her. <laughs> How ridiculous. But anyway, um, so on Tuesday, uh, she beat. Uh, they called him, I guess, the King of Queens. Uh, he was the he- he's the head yep. of the the Queens <laughs> Queens Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin James, he is not. But uh, Crowley, <laughs> actually, they they both yeah maybe <laughs> maybe maybe actually no. But Crowley, you know, he I have to say, as someone who's lived in Queens my whole life, I knew I'm in. You know, I, as someone who's political, I knew who he was. Right. But but he never was really someone who was like oh when I think of Queens I think of Crowley like yeah he never showed his face mm-hmm. so when she wins on Tuesday and I was follow- I was following this race now you on the other hand I was following it for a little bit but uh, for a couple of months and then you know as we got closer I would say a couple of months ago I was like she's gonna do it 
But you, you, I think you point out a tweet where it was like, what, last summer? <laughs> where you were like, I, she's going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I host a happy hour in the East Village. And she came by actually last year. And she came by after like a day of knocking on doors. And I was like, look at my watch. I'm like, knocking on doors? Like, I, that's, you're early. And, and, but she, like, she had her like elevator pitch down. She's like, this guy's never been elected. He's taking pack money. He's not concerned about the district. Like, I think I can beat him. And I was like, I, all right. And I, I think like, as it started to like progress, like you saw more and more just like talents going to that campaign, you know, the win number was always going to be like reasonably low. And I, I remember so many conversations at the 2016 election where, you know, me and other socialists and progressives, and we would say, we need somebody who has Obama's us and Bernie Sanders is them. And I think that AOC so perfectly represents exactly that, where she's like, this is who we are. We are a multiracial, uh, populist, working class movement. And this is who they are. And they are the people with the money and the power. Um, and we're going to fucking take them down. And Honestly, like just watching after her, her win, the way that people have engaged with her ideas, I think she's going to be such a powerful, you know, face for democratic socialist ideas and is really going to make those ideas like be contested. Right. We had in, in, in Seattle, where, where as soon as you have a social city council member, the media has to report on everything she says. They have to take her policy ideas seriously, and that has an incredible amount of weight. At the end of the day, she can propose amendments, she can propose riders, and she can make Democrats take definitive stances on the issues that she ran on. And so I think that like the, the power uh, of her movement is going to be incredible and is going to be felt for years to come. You know, you know what I find really uh, important, actually, with her, her running obviously, and her winning, obviously – uh, and, and how she's been uh, tackling the criticisms or the uh, write-ups about this is how she did it or this is what it, she stands right. for from people who are, you know, establishment pundits. Who never paid attention. Right, centrist Democrats. Uh, she is the uh, perfect example of how the left, the real left, democratic socialists, uh, people with the politics of uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, she is showing that the people who supported Bernie Sanders, the young people, the millennials, the people on that uh, spectrum, ideology-wise, they really are the true, uh, the, the the true left. Like they really are the real deal. Like because she shows the intersectionality of it because that's what she mm -hmm. like. The perfect like cir she she circles it all. Like she shows that it's identity, it's the politics, it's the work. Because so many of these pundits are coming out saying, oh, she only won because of the demographics, because that's all they want to make it about. And she comes out and she puts her foot down and says, no, that's not why. And you don't, mm -hmm. see, like, you don't see people on the left going like, no, she only, she only won because of her, uh, her, her, her support of Medicare for all and her support for, for economic issues. You don't see that at all. Because the people on the left... And I've been I've been trying to you know beat this 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 over people's heads. We are, when when you know when when you see these dem, uh, these Democrats and these centrists trying to use identity politics against the left, which I always find to be ridiculous. 
It's like she is showing that that's not the case. It's never been that way. The left has always been the people who care about race and economics and all of this stuff on the same level. There's not one thing that's more important than the other. There's not one thing we focus on. It's all or nothing. Yeah. I mean, the answer is she won because she had, you know, three years in that district doing organizing work in a year knocking on doors. And I, I really I, I like Patel and uh, uh, Bunkadeco a lot. Um, I know them both. I thought they ran good campaigns. Uh, but the you know, and Bunkadeco got within three points of Clark, and P- Patel hit forty, which I think no one no one expected. But the thing that put AOC over the edge was that she just had more time with that district, um, and she had deeper ties to that district, and she had a really strong critique of a candidate who was not prepared to be critiqued. I mean, everyone says that Crowley took this seriously. He didn't show up to a debate, right? Like everyone's like, oh, Crowley was like, you know, really going at, I don't know. Like he spent most of his time, he was known, he had, he had nicknames of Virginia Joe and stuff because he spent so little time in the district. And when they had a debate, he sent a surrogate in his place rather than actually debate her face to face. And I think that like, when you have such a slap in the face to the district, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're hurting for it. But yeah, I mean, like at the end of the day, um, she put in a lot of work and a lot of time to make that win happen. And, and only the sort of top line gets seen. Well, even if you want to compare to the other, for people who are listening and aren't familiar, um, what were the other two candidates' names? I was following them. I was... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, New York's ninth, Adam Bunkadeco, um, was against Yvette Clark, and he uh, he was within three points. I think it was 48-51. Um, and then Siraj Patel um, challenged Carolyn Maloney. That was in the 12th district, and he got about 41% of the vote. Now, I was following their races. I was following their campaigns, and, you know, I, I... – Obviously, they were the, they were thrown in there with Alexandria Ocasio Cortez because they were three young progressives, and yeah, they they are if you know three young progressives. If you look at the entire you know the entirety of their their platform, uh, they each were certainly to the left of who they were running against, and I certainly would have preferred either of them winning. But yeah. at the same the same time, you know, the, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez ran a campaign that really could just be described as real, like. I was, yeah. I was like, she is the real deal. What she's, when you, when you saw her speak, you knew these weren't just things that they were, you know, maybe on board with because they had to be on board with. Like the other two, you know, they certainly, like I said, left and progressive, but they each of them had certain, and, and, and it's silly to go yeah, into yeah, it yeah. now, but they each had certain, like you know, certain issues where you know it's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't really think right. his uh, position on charter schools is really where it should be. That's weird for. No, that's, that's totally correct. Yeah. But um, but she, on the other hand, was the total package. No weird little like, hmm, are they going to be with us on that issue if they got elected? You know, she's no question about it. <laughs> yeah, she was always very good off the cuff, and I think some people thought that was just like some sort of like talent or something. But I I always understood it as like she's been a really long time thinking about these issues. Um, and the reason that she was, was able to be so good off the cuff is that she spent so much time in these communities, like understanding the issues. Um, and I, I mean, honestly, her website, the issues page is a sight to behold because you have so many candidates right. who consultants tell them don't take definitive positions. And it caused you, she was just like, here's my stance and here's the very specific piece of legislation that I'm ready to either introduce or co-sponsor. Um, she had, she had there was absolutely no 
point in which you did not think that she was saying something she didn't truly believe and was ready to fight on. And honestly, like, I hope that people take some lesson from that, that like having a position that you are ready to stand for really means a lot to voters and they can see through um, pretty transparently, um, you know, people who are wishy-washy on their issues. So she, you know, for people who aren't following, who, who, who you know, maybe who are following this and may not know uh, the New York district that she, she won, she, and, and I thought it was hilarious because uh, that guy who runs that terrible uh, fake news Democratic like website, the Palmer Report, he's got like oh, he's got like two hundred thousand followers. That site definitely makes him, you know, a decent chunk of change through like Google ads or whatever for just writing exactly what you know you're you're still with her hashtag still with her people still want they want to read in here. You know, he comes out when she won and he's talking about. How she's gonna lose against the Republican? I bet, and you gotta watch out for that. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, it's like, dude, do you know the district? Republican on the ballot. There, 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 there is this this guy who runs every okay. time. His name's like Anthony Pappas or something like that. He runs like every. He won't, he won't get more than five like, yeah, percent. there's no question. This this is a district that basically. You win the primary. You win the general. Yeah. Like like the primary is actually the real fight. There is no general oh, yeah. fight. Like and, and and like a lot of people really uh, even on a broader sense didn't understand how that was at least in my view for for when Bernie was running in, in 2016 like his fight was always going to be with Hillary Hillary was always going to be the the one who he he was going to have trouble defeating uh, he was someone who I felt was specifically you know maybe any other Republican candidate he would have had trouble with maybe because they would have used all that boogeyman socialism bullshit but he was because of his worker bona fides he was the the guy to go up against trump but that stuff aside whatever you know a lot of ways this mirrors all that it's stunning to really watch actually yeah i mean like look there are districts in this country that republicans win you know fewer than 20 percent, fewer than 10 percent there are districts where republicans win fewer than five percent of the vote there is absolutely no reason for those democrats to represent those districts to not be i mean like carolyn maloney voted against the iran deal like there was no reason for like Joe Crowley to not only be in favor of like, you know, Medicare for all, but like climate justice. He should support fucking reparations in a D34 district. Um, you know, these guys should be in favor of the Weatherman undergrounds because like they have no electoral threat except the one that exists from the left. And I'm sort of joking, but also maybe kind of like, <laughs> why not have someone representing one of these districts who is actually ready to use this as a bully pulpit, who's ready to sort of like introduce really, really left legislation to make the media talk about it? Because the, on the right, you have immigration bills that are straight up fascism and then immigration bills that are like kind of fascism. And everyone in the media calls it, you know, uh, the compromise bill. So what if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was like, you know what, Medicare for all, that's baby stuff. Uh, Full-on socialized medicine, nationalized healthcare. Then all of a sudden, Medicare for all is the centrist, reasonable right. compromise solution. Right. And you've never had candidates willing to do this in these districts because they fundamentally are still constrained not by the ideology of the district, but by the ideology of their aides, of their consultants, and of themselves. And I think, like, why not have – the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Why not have Cory Bush in Missouri's first calling for prison abolition? You know, there's no chance Republicans are ever going to win this district. So why not at least have someone who's willing to stand up for the most left values 
um, that we can have in this country. Well, that's that's really the problem. What, to really start right. to to end where we started, that uh, these uh, these people who run these these strategist companies and firms uh, who tell the Democrats what will what will help them win, what will make them win. Uh, they're telling them exactly the opposite of what we're talking about right here. Mm-hmm. And but their time is over. Look, AOC cut her own fucking videos with volunteers, and she beat the best. Like there is absolutely no reason that a candidate can't win a race with two hundred thousand dollars with a big old volunteer army and folks coming in board to cut videos and stuff. We are all fucking millennials. We know how to make a compelling. Cut a video. I, I know that like we we briefly cut out because of internet stuff, but you know that's <laughs> that's not us. That's the capitalist. We know how to we know how but to yeah, deal like, with that stuff and get right back on the feed. We I've got a Wi Fi hotspot right now. Um, so <laughs> exactly like we we can make these campaigns win in a competitive primary. Ten percent of people, thirteen percent of people in the district voted. The win number is easily winnable with enough door knocks. And we can actually beat these consultant classes and show them how it's done. Exactly. I think that's the perfect way. We, we, just like uh, AOC, like I was saying before, <laughs> we, we circled it up here. We uh, went around and we uh, hit exactly everything we needed to hit. Uh, we ended on the good note. Uh, unfortunately, I teased it on Twitter and somehow we didn't get to it. Uh, LeBron James going to the Lakers uh, was the big news. We really needed to discuss it. <laughs> But I know unfortunately, so little about sports. I, I'm so sorry, but I know. My mother explained Fortnite to me yesterday. Oh, this is terrible for our whole argument <laughs> that millennials are gonna gonna figure this all out and <laughs> I'm actually not a sports person either, but I know what Fortnite is. Come on, man. Jeez. All right. Uh, she said it was like the Hunger Games but turned into a video game. So <laughs> that's a that's a good way to describe it, definitely. And uh, okay, right, cool. let's let, let's actually end on some breaking news that uh, you you probably will know maybe a little bit more than video games and sports about the the leftist in Mexico just won the presidency. Oh, that's great! Yeah, the uh, Amlo. Yeah. Oh shit! <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, he uh, he won. So uh, this seems to be. Uh, I'm just seeing this now. Maybe it happened right before we went on, but I'm just seeing it now. Um, but I did get the LeBron James breaking news before we went on. That's the important oh, thing. Oh, where'd he go? Where'd he go? Uh, oh, he's going to the Lakers. Yeah, he's going to, uh... Oh, okay. Yeah, he's, uh, leaving, uh... He's leaving, uh, his, uh, beloved hometown, and he's... Something like a $154 million deal over four years. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Still, nothing compared to what a hedge funder makes. I, I... Absolutely. I, I'm, sports Absolutely. people, I'm fine with making as much money as they want. Listen, take it from the hedge fund. People. Listen, all throughout, <laughs> all throughout, like high school and everything, I was always like jocks and everything. But then, you know, as you get older and you get more into politics and you read about this stuff, like they're really the only like uh, professional sports stars. Really, are the only like workers who make bank. Like you gotta, so <laughs> you gotta like support those guys because they'll, they, we, they hopefully they'll, you know continue to make bank and bring all the other workers up with them uh, once we uh, get a full-on socialist utopia. Uh, (laughs) All right. right. (laughs) Excuse me. Now I'm like choking. (laughs) All right. Sean McAway, co-founder of Data for Progress. Follow Sean. By the way, I should say abolishice.org. You can buy an abolishice t-shirt. The money goes to Make the Road Action, United We Dream Action, and other frontline groups. I do need to pay. 
I need to fix that. <laughs> oh man, you got to get better with that, dude. When I asked Sorry. when I asked you before the show, how do you want me to introduce you? That's where you throw in literally every single thing you want me to plug. I feel like I wear seven hats. I feel I wear so many hats. It's all good, man. I really appreciate you joining us from wherever you are. I know you were traveling and we had to move the show around a little bit. No problem at all. Uh, we gave the people uh, something to watch on a Sunday night. Now that Westworld is over for the season. Uh, this will be listened to as a podcast, I'm sure, by many, many people, judging by the other episodes. Um, thanks again for joining us, man, and I hope to have you on again real soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. Have a great one. Take care. You too. There goes the uh, Skype call. Ooh, I love that sound. Uh, and let me put me on here as the main source here. There we go. There we go. All right, people. It is Sunday night. We have a few minutes left. Uh, let me give you updates. Updates. And then the next episode, I promise, we will do calls. I'll have a specific Skype line uh, dedicated to taking your calls, and we'll do it that way. Um, but let's talk about uh, some news here. Uh, first up, uh, let me know actually how the stream went because I am using a uh, new computer that I had to purchase because there have been some changes in my life that I'm about to get to you to about to get to that required me to uh, get a new computer, uh, and I literally just I've been it's been a process setting it up because uh, if you use you know if you use one MacBook for your whole entire uh, what, what was it like? Geez, like three three years with all your stuff and your everyday stuff it takes a while to really get all the stuff you need on the new one without still filling it up with the trash from the old one. So it, the new one isn't bogged down and slowed down right off the bat. Uh, but you still need to get take some of the stuff because then you can't run the feed. I don't have all the assets and the photos and the pictures and the sound effects and the intros and the blah 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 blah. You know, you know the drill. Um, actually, maybe he does because maybe not everyone here runs a podcast. It's okay. So that on that front, let me know how the stream looks. Let me know if there was any sort of um, – other than that one issue that I fixed, it was, a, it was a user issue, my fault, where I went out for uh, a small portion at the beginning of the show. Let me know if there was any dropouts, any um, you know, uh, uh, lagging on the live stream on YouTube. Let me know that stuff. Second of all, uh, I had promised you guys who are patrons, patreon.com slash mapbender, that would update you on some news. And I said I had a new gig in the works. And you might have seen me. I started there this past week. I'm now doing tech reporting for Mashable.com. Uh, I'm very excited to do that. Uh, because it honestly will give me the ability to... Uh, spend more time actually on this show booking guests and everything because the juggling I was doing before that uh, after the uh, stuff going on uh, with cafe.com changing and switching things up and me not uh, working at cafe.com and then working with uh, do, uh, one of the other websites uh, under the company that runs cafe.com and I was doing some stuff for their their parenting website, the dad, for a little while. And I was doing some freelance stuff. Uh, all that, yeah. So I will have more time now to dedicate to this show. Uh, also, uh, I will be able to make up for that uh, last episode on uh, last week that was postponed. I will be having that uh, information for all of you shortly. 
And we will be uh, having some good stuff coming up. I've had some good guests working things out. I uh, don't want to name drop till things are confirmed. And that will be going first to the patrons. And then I'll announce on Twitter. Um, like I've been doing. Nothing changes there. Um, we are creeping up on uh, the halfway point to the goal. Which means I will start throwing out uh, half of the members patron-only stuff. Uh, as soon as we hit that, I'll be probably giving, you know, the idea was once we hit the goal on Patreon, I would do a members, uh, a patron only members show where, you know, a, sh- a short uh, weekly uh, broadcast where I quickly run down the news, stuff that I wouldn't get to necessarily maybe if it wasn't long enough to have a, a full on guest or if that week, you know, I have a guest that wasn't talking about the issue that issue, and by the time the next uh, show came, there was something else that happens. Because you know that the news cycle moves so fast now. Um, so yeah, I'll be doing that. So once we hit that halfway point, nothing says I can't start doing every other week, giving you guys some sort of bonus, only uh, patron-only material. Um, let's go to the uh, YouTube live stream comment section here. Um, Theo says, more like uh, matchable. Uh, and Kennedy uh, replied to Theo with a dum Yeah, okay. Uh, Theo also had a reply to uh, when we were talking with Sean about the issues with the Skype call dropping out. And Theo said, thank you, capitalism, for teaching us resilience. That's true. I would say capitalism has made us stronger. So when we fully are a uh, socialist nation, uh, the people who live under capitalism will be able to say, you know, I lived this, and I'm a little bit more, uh, I know how to deal with this stuff when uh, maybe uh, some terrible far-right candidate tries to bring it back. Uh, My dad was watching the show, and when I was getting uh, Sean back on the uh, feed uh, and doing some uh, clicking to pass the time for you all, uh, he would like to uh, name drop the movie Hereditary, which was fantastic. Uh, it's a good movie, actually. You should all see it. Uh, let's see what else in the comments section today. Uh, uh, Theo also uh, had some funny uh, sound effects to give me as well, with some LMAOs and some adios mios and all that fun stuff. Folks, it is Sunday night. Uh, I'm sure uh, there is some sort of last week tonight you could all watch. <laughs> I hope uh, th- uh, trying different days out is something I'm going to continue to do, actually. Um, we've been doing it pretty frequently. I think the last like three, four, or five shows uh, were all sa- a Saturday afternoon. Uh, I want to test out some other days, different times, and see how that works with you all. Uh, again, most people are still listening to this show as a podcast. Uh, many uh, from the analytics of the podcast host I use, uh, in fact, many thousands of people, uh, more than that, tens of thousands of people who listen uh, to this show uh, are on the podcast, whereas literally a handful of you uh I can count on uh, sometimes uh, two to four hands 
uh, are on the live stream. But the point of the live stream is that, A, Patreons seem to really enjoy the live stream because they seem to be the ones who are watching on the live stream. And also, uh, the comments, which are great. Usually, somehow tonight they are not. Uh, (laughs) Not to knock Theo and my dad. And Kennedy, who would like to drop in and say, I want to see Hereditary so bad. Uh, It's a really good movie, actually. Uh, It was one of those horror movies where, you know, there's not jump scares and things like that. You're not going to be, like, screaming uh, throughout, jumping out of your seat or, you know, the cheap thriller type stuff. Uh, But it will give you a headache because it is so tense. Like, I can't remember the last time I saw a movie where I really wasn't sure where it was going. Like, I went into the movie thinking uh, not much in terms of knowing where it was going. I was really sit- I sat down, and I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. I have no idea really what I'm, I'm, I'm here for. Uh, and then it got to a point, you know, 20, 30 minutes in, I would say, where you're like, okay, I sort of see where this is going. And then without doing like an M. Night Shyamalan swerve, like a legit, like, holy shit moment, they change it up. And it's like, I have no idea where this is going again. And in fact, I have less of an idea of where this is going than when I came in and sat down. And I had no idea then either. And the movie is really good. <laughs> um, if it doesn't win some sort of... Uh, yeah, it, Kennedy says it looks more in the vein of The Witch. It definitely is like that. But I would say better. The Witch was a good movie. Um, but this, this is something that is much better than The Witch. Although there, there isn't anyone in this movie who's as likable as the goat from The Witch. It was, it was Black Phillip, right? I liked that goat. He was a good, he was a good character. Um, so everybody, I will see you, uh, the next episode. Uh, I will let you all know who is coming onto the show. Uh, this conversation with Sean was fantastic. Uh, we got to talk about Supreme Court, which I really want to talk about. We got to talk about Abolish Ice, which I really want to talk about. And I'm sure uh, we will have Sean on for both of those things again. Uh, and we'll have other guests talking about both of those things on this show again because they are constantly uh, going to be in the news because that's the way... Uh, well, Supreme Court, obviously, uh, when Trump picks his replacement for Kennedy, and then I really do think the Abolish Ice movement is going to really continue to pick up steam, and I, I, th- I think it's going to be, uh, as they say, an idea whose time has come, and it's going to really, it's going to happen. I don't know when, uh, but it's going to happen. Like Medicare for all, it's going to happen. And it's going to happen sooner than people think. And, uh, of course, we'll also be talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez a lot more because she's going to, She's on her way to Washington, folks. We're going to have a proud 28-year-old millennial democratic socialist uh, in Washington representing the district right over from me. And I think she's going to be a real force. And I think, uh, again, she can't do it alone. But, you know, with all these movements gaining steam, then leading to the real you know, I think the real change maker in terms of these ideas becoming mainstreamed with Bernie Sanders' 2016 run and then all these candidates and all these ideas that that campaign sparked 
and 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 uh, inspired. And then we're here now with Alexandria. Uh, I, th- I, th- I think you know. And then of course Cynthia Nixon. Hopefully, you know, if you weren't on board before, she can do it. And I want to let you know that she can do it because uh, I, I can tell you she can do it. Uh, it's going to be a very hard. It's going to be, dare I say, a lot harder than any of the other races where we had a chance. Uh, even the ones where we've won, like with uh, defeating Crowley with AOC. Um, Cuomo is someone who is deeply, like Hillary Clinton style, entrenched with the the establishment Democratic Party and the lobbyists and the the campaign funders. But if there's anyone who can do it, it's Cynthia Nixon, and and she can do it. Um, So uh, that's our show for today, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on the stream. Patreon.com slash Matt Binder. Become a patron today. We're getting so close to throwing out some uh, member stuff. Uh, support this show by subscribing on iTunes, leave a review, please leave a review, we're getting close to 100 reviews in the short amount of time, less than a year, this has been a a podcast, Uh, and uh, tell all your friends about the show, it is hot in here, I shut the AC off because I didn't want any noise to to get in here, Uh, it is hot, I'm going to go turn the AC on everyone, see you all next time, oh man I'm sweaty. Undoomed.